0: and welcome to Talking Finance. And What a week it's been. Presidential tweets are going off like distant firecrackers. The Reserve Bank decided not to change interest rates. It was International Women's Day this week and Carol Bayer-Sager turned 70 on that day. Heavens above. But look, the Reserve Bank has a dilemma. It would probably like to cut interest rates again to get consumer price inflation and employment up but house price inflation is stopping it. Last year's rate cuts reignited the housing boom into a roaring blaze, especially in Sydney. And housing affordability has become the hottest subject in town once more, moving to the top of political inboxes. The bloke who measures house prices for Australians is Tim Lawless of CoreLogic. I asked him what's happened in the past 12 months.
1: Housing affordability has been a hot topic for a long time now, but it's only now just getting a lot of political attention, which uh, unfortunately is probably uh, quite quite late in the piece. now that we've seen Sydney dwelling values over the last five years alone have increased by 75% uh, against the backdrop of record low wages growth and uh, very low household income growth. So what it does show uh, across the four different measures of affordability that we've been tracking is that affordability is substantially worsening when you compare affordability to or housing prices to household incomes. But one of the measures, of course, is based on serviceability, which is very much factored uh, based on the very low mortgage rate environment. And that's the only measure of affordability that has shown some, some quite dramatic improvement thanks to the very low mortgage rate environment that we're in. In fact, back in 2007, on average, it was taking about uh, 50% of a household's income, the annual income, to service the typical mortgage. And that was despite dwelling values being substantially lower than what they are now back in, say, 2007. But at the moment, we've seen uh, serviceability vastly improve because the typical mortgage rates are generally somewhere in, a, in the high fours, a low 5% mark. So despite that very strong rise in dwelling values, we have seen uh, those people that already own a home actually being able to service that debt quite reasonably.
0: Would you call it a crisis? Uh, an affordability crisis? Well, I think
1: in some areas, affordability is certainly very challenging. And uh, affordability yeah nationally isn't really that difficult it's not really that challenging but if you look at some areas around uh, the country like sydney like melbourne and that's absolutely where the affordability challenge is most profound in fact if you look at sydney if you want to if you want to buy into the housing market as a first home buyer you'll need to be spending about 170% of so the annual household gross income just in order to get a 20% deposit so for those people who don't already own a home and have the benefits of the high equity in, in based on the capital gains that's the real challenge. So it's a factor that's affecting first-home buyers more dramatically than most other segments in the marketplace. And it's probably the key reason why, um, if you look at the ABS housing finance data, that first-home buyers are only about 8% of mortgage demand across New South Wales.
0: Now, the Reserve Bank left interest rates on hold this week. Um, and obviously, one of the factors that was in their mind uh, was the heat of the housing market. And in fact, the housing house prices rose rapidly after the interest rates that started last year. There was one in May and one in August. Tell us what happened after the May rate cut last year.
1: So we we did see interest rates cut in May May and August last year, down by 50 basis points all up. And uh, that that coincided almost perfectly with a resurgence in investors as well, which created additional demand in the housing market. So it's those two phenomenon, the, the rise in investment and the lower cost of debt, that has seen a real rebound in the rate of capital gains. Uh, So, to cast cast the the, the dice forward now to February end of February 2017, and we've seen Sydney dwelling value growth on an annual basis rise to 18.4%. In early last year, it bottomed out at about 7.5% annual growth. So, we've seen the annual growth rate more than double since the middle of last year. And that, of course, has been on the back of uh, a lot more investment in the marketplace, as well as the fact that uh, we are seeing more broader demand based on the fact that the cost of debt is so low.
0: Yeah, in fact, early last year, it looked like the housing boom was over and it was, everything was quietening down. And I remember you were reporting on that and, and, you know, everyone was saying that, oh, well, that's it for the housing boom. it's We're having a soft landing and and to blow me down, it's taken off again.
1: It's been quite the rebound, And, uh, you know, look at auction clearance rates. Uh, early last year, we were seeing auctions in Sydney and Melbourne having a clearance rate generally around the, the sort of mid-50s to mid-60% mark. And ever since um, the spring season of last year, Auction clearance rates have been well and truly up around the mid 70s to, uh, to mid 80% mark. So it's not just the, the pace of capital gains that's rebounded. We've seen uh, listing numbers fall away sharply in Sydney and Melbourne as a lot of stock has been absorbed in the market. And that's one of the key things that is driving values higher as well. It's just this sense of urgency in the market based on the fact that um, there's very little stock out there to choose from. And a lot of buyers feel like they need to buy into the marketplace very quickly which doesn't leave them a lot of ability to negotiate with vendors.
0: And was it all just sparked by the the two rate cuts last year? That was probably the catalyst. And, uh, of
1: course, investment as well has um, rebounded quite substantially since May of last year as well. But that had a lot more to do with not just the fact that rates had moved lower, but the fact that banks became much more willing to lend to investors because they'd so comprehensively met the APRA 10% speed limit target. So APRA back in December 2014 set a 10% speed limit on investment growth, Uh, At the time, investment credit growth was tracking at about 11% per annum. So by mid-last year, we saw credit growth to investors was tracking at around the 5% mark, and uh, the banks became much more willing to lend to that group. So we did see uh, easier lending coinciding with uh, the lower mortgage rates, which has really seen investment rebound
0: into the market. Well, the Reserve Bank must feel like it's playing with a box of matches. I mean, they must be terrified to cut rates again.
1: Well, I think that the strength in the housing market's probably one of the key factors why we're not likely to see another rate cut. There's plenty of other reasons that um, we would probably like the Reserve Bank would like to push rates lower, you know, to stimulate uh, more consumption, to see uh, some upwards pressure on inflation, take some pressure off the Australian dollar, for example, um, and plenty of industries uh, could require uh, could benefit from the stimulus of lower rates, as well as housing markets outside of Sydney and Melbourne could probably benefit from some stimulus as well. Look what's happening in Perth. The values are still falling. Same in Darwin. Uh, they're rising about in, in pace uh, um, of inflation in Brisbane and in Adelaide as well. So arguably we could see some stimulus in those housing markets without any fear of, um, of house prices becoming unsustainable. This is really a story about Sydney and Melbourne and uh, without a doubt I think the Reserve Bank would be very reticent to lower rates for fear of uh, overstimulating the housing market once again.
0: Do you think it necessarily means that there'll be a housing crash? Uh, or at least a significant decline uh, when interest rates go up, or perhaps even before?
1: If you look back through every growth cycle we've had historically in Australia, they're generally followed by some level of downturn. Now, the most recent downturn we've had in Australia was between October 2010 and May 2012, and we saw capital city dwelling values fall by about 6 to 7%. Uh, a little bit less than that in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, more than that in, in some of the softer markets like Brisbane and Perth, So it does stand to reason that uh, once this growth cycle is over, and uh, it's probably just around the corner, that we will start to see some, uh, first of all, a reduction in the rate of capital gains, and then some downwards movements in dwelling values. Is the marketplace going to crash? Well, probably not. And uh, I'd be surprised if we saw a peak to drop decline in Sydney that's more than, say, 10%. Historically, uh, downturns have been fairly moderate in Australia. And uh, once values fall, they tend to to remain um, on a fairly neutral setting with minimal growth. That's exactly what happened in Sydney between 2004 and 2009. And the growth cycle that ran from about 2000 through to 2004 was even um, stronger than what the current growth cycle is at the moment. Very different economic conditions, sure, but I'd be surprised if um, the marketplace was followed by uh, a severe material reduction in dwelling values. And also, you'll probably find that geographically, there is uh, a lot of difference in the decline. We probably will see uh, larger declines in, in some inner city unit markets that are very much investment led. Uh, whereas some of the blue chip areas, take your, your inner Sydney's, uh, eastern suburbs, and so forth, they generally have shown historically, outside of 2008 and the GFC, they've historically shown fairly resilient conditions. And we probably won't see values falling by as much as the capital city average in those markets.
0: I suppose to get a big in, a decline in prices, you'd need a lot of housing stock to come onto the market. And as you pointed out, there's a lot, of, there's a shortage at the moment. There's hardly anything coming on. Real estate agents are up against it. Even though house prices are booming, they're not getting enough listings. And it's hard to imagine a lot of stock coming onto the market and why it would happen.
1: That's definitely one of the factors that is driving growth in the market in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment is the fact that stock levels are so low. The only way I could see a, uh, a significant rebound in, in advertised stock levels is if we started to see uh, um, a lot of the investment-held properties starting to flow into the marketplace. So if we did see, for example, significant changes to the taxation concessions or uh, stamp duty or negative gearing, for example, then then maybe we could start to see more investors trying to offload their properties, which could result in a bit of flood of uh, properties coming into the marketplace but at the moment, I think that's one of the key reasons why we aren't seeing a slowdown in growth conditions at the moment is because of the very low stock levels. But once again, that's such a Sydney and Melbourne-centric phenomenon. In Perth, for example, uh, we're seeing more stock for sale than uh, than what's in Sydney, despite Perth being a radically smaller, substantially smaller city. And uh, that's one of the reasons why there's no urgency in our marketplace. There's a lot of choice and uh, simply no upwards pressure on prices because buyers can move uh, from property to property if they're not getting the right
0: price. Yeah, you know, Tim, I was just thinking about negative gearing, and if it was to be banned or even restricted to new dwellings, as the Labor Party proposes, it would almost certainly be grandfathered, as the Labor Party also proposes that any changes that it makes would be grandfathered. In a way, that would result in a drying up of investment stock because the last thing anyone would want to do is actually sell an existing negatively geared property.
1: Well, that will certainly soften the blow. And I'd, I'd agree with you that if we did see uh, a negative year change, then existing rules would be grandfathered. One of the risks there, though, is it does see a substantial slowdown in investment demand. You know, we're moving through an unprecedented unit uh, um, construction boom at the moment. We've never seen this number of units currently under construction. It's about 160,000 units currently under construction across the market. It's, it's largely reliant on investment demand.
0: It's, it's mostly Chinese money, isn't it?
1: Well, that's, that's hard to prove up. I don't think uh, it is mostly Chinese money. Sure, there are boutique, or the, the niche developments that are very much inclined to be sold to uh, overseas buyers. But, um, until we start to see some more evidence coming out of FERB, you know, the Foreign Investment Review Board hasn't released um, a report on foreign buying activity since 2014-15 financial year. So we don't have any hard evidence to make uh, those sort of statements. You can look at the NAB survey, for example, that is showing – There's been some easing in fine demand as well, and that largely comes back to the fact that that local lenders, domestic lenders, are becoming much less willing to to lend to those um, borrowers who source their income from overseas.
0: It was International Women's Day on Wednesday, and at the ABC it was actually Men's Day Off, that is. They told all the men presenters to have the day off and replace them with women. Except me. I had to front up. Curses. Anyway, to mark the day, I interviewed a former journo on the Financial Review, Bianca Hachi hazelman who has investigated the position of women and brought it together into something called the Financy Women's Index, which she launched this week.
2: So, Alan, the index comprises of six key indicators, and we take a lifespan, women's working lifespan approach, so we're looking at government data across a range of agencies from the ATO to the Bureau of Statistics to even the Department of Education and more. And we're looking at tertiary education results, what sectors women are women are working in, where they dominate, what the wages are like in those sectors, what the pay cuts are like there, and through to superannuation funds. And then, of course, looking at the top ASX listed companies by market capitalisation.
0: I think last year, percent of Australian... Uh, top 20 boards had women, or was the percentage of women was 24.7%, up to 30.8%, big increase. So uh, obviously it's starting to have traction.
2: Definitely starting to have traction. You've got TBA with 40% women on its board, uh, ANZ with 375 um just among the, the list of those top 20 there. So what one would hope is that this has a top down effect, starts to trickle down rather than what we tend to see is a grassroots effect. But you know, clearly there's been a bit of public demand. There's um, there's scrutiny there for gender diversity, and when you have big companies like this, I suppose that there is that added pressure to be a leader in this space. And, and I think
0: we're seeing that. Well, indeed we are, and we're also seeing, uh, as you say, a shrinking of the pay gap as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that that's been an interesting one to watch, and and I suppose when I when I even look at the chart here, uh, if we really drill into to what's been driving that, so that's down to sixteen percent, the lowest it's been, as I said, in five years. But it's still not the best result. In two thousand and four, we actually dropped the the pay gap narrowed to fourteen percent.
0: The main reason for the the wage disparity is the difference in jobs that. Uh, men and women have and go for, but is there still any disparity in the salary when men and women do the same job?
2: Well, there's a lot of um, anecdotal um, suggestions that there, that there are. There's, there's research that's been out saying that women um, don't tend to be as pushy as much. They don't tend to be as confident. They're told by managers, one research um, paper said in the US, that they they need to be more confident and get more experience so I think a lot of women would say yes I'm having trouble achieving that but how do we all together know that you know colleague x is getting paid so much more than you than you know how do you know that and on the other side of the debate is of course women who say you know I've never experienced that and I like to think that I have an experience to be honest with you Alan.
0: This uh, obviously uh, the constant investor is a product for investors Partly with your experience as a financial review journalist, do you think that this growing trend, particularly of uh, top 20 boards, um, comprising more than 30% women, is a positive trend for investors?
2: I do, because what we do know is that companies that tend to have a greater uh, diverse balance on their boards tend to outperform. We have seen that before. I believe it was last year's top performers (laughs) not this year, so actually 2000, let's go back a little bit further. Um, when we had Blackmores and Bellamy's as the top performers, things have slightly changed now, but they were headed up by, by women. And, and I think because of that, um, comments were out there about the gender diversity and uh, around those particular companies. Now, things are different now, but other research does seem to back up that the more diverse thinking you have on a board that the better outcomes you can achieve for investors. And we also know that companies with investment um, companies like BlackRock actually include gender diversity as part of their mandate. So they're not just looking at those um, other key drivers of of company and corporate performance. They're actually including, well, is this company diverse? How diverse is it? And they're putting that into whether or not they do or don't invest in the company.
0: Because the mention of Blackboards and Bellamy's Reminds us that although there's a 30% or more representation of women on boards, that isn't the case with CEOs. Of course, I think I've been mm. told. I think I've been told five or six times this week that there are more men named John than women as CEOs in Australia. <laughs> uh, it seems to be, I didn't know uh, that,
2: but
0: it's, it seems to have gone viral. But have you studied that at all, or just the boards?
2: We haven't looked uh, as we haven't delved as deep into the, the CEO numbers as we have. With the boards, no. We know that among the 219 board positions that we've got in the top 20, 69 are occupied by women. CEOs is something we need to look at. How far back do we go? Do we do we look at the whole 200? I suspect that I'm going to find a hell of a lot of jobs in that, and um, but I think that is a really good point that you're raising, and I think we need to look at it. <music>
0: now a couple of companies, one big, one small, one selling a 120 year old brown fizzy drink and the other trying to sell a one person aircraft or jet packs. First the fizzy drink purveyor, Coca-Cola Amatil and its CEO Alison Watkins, one of the female CEOs than which there are more Johns. The company saw profit decline a bit in the latest half and Alison's problem is achieving growth that doesn't involve just cutting costs.
3: We had some good growth from our growth markets like Indonesia, PNG, alcohol and coffee, Fiji. Even New Zealand delivered some nice growth for us. Australia came in uh, at about a 1.8% EBIT decline, so a modest EBIT decline. And certainly fair to say that there's some pressure on the top line in Australia and we're making quite a lot of changes which make the business more responsive and agile that mean that we're investing in the right brands and categories that will deliver growth in future years and we're very confident about that.
0: You undertook a strategic review when you took over and announced the results of that in 2014. There were three main points that came out of it. The second one was making a step change in our productivity and in market execution. Have you done that now?
3: That theme is playing through differently in each one of our markets. In Indonesia, for example, we've substantially restructured what we call our route to market, the way that we sell and distribute to our customers such that we're now reaching many more customers and particularly the smaller traditional customers who we found difficult to service. We've got a much better model for that. We've also dramatically improved our productivity in Indonesia in our factories and really in every aspect of the business. Here in Australia, we've also um, made some quite significant changes. We delivered on our $100 million cost-out target that we set back in 2014. Ahead of schedule, we've now made progress on a second round $100 million, which will come out over a three-year period. And we're also making some substantial changes to our supply chain. So we're investing in new dairy and juice capacity. A lot of that will go into our Queensland site. And we, unfortunately, over the next two years, will be ceasing manufacture in our Theberton site in Adelaide in South Australia. So some reconfiguration going, and that definitely is all about improving our productivity, but also making sure that we've got the capability to produce the products that consumers will want in the future.
0: What about a sugar tax? There seems to be a bit of a trend around the world for that, which would be uh, pretty damaging for you.
3: Yeah, you're certainly right. Sugar taxes are being implemented in some countries and typically discussed in a number of others. We take a, a lot of heart that both major parties here in Australia don't have any intention of putting in place a sugar tax. And I think that is absolutely right because we know that from our experience around the world and what we believe would happen here in Australia that sugar taxes don't work in terms of being a meaningful way to tackle obesity and they do hurt. So they hurt jobs, they hurt manufacturing and that's certainly um, not a direction that we would want to see. That said, we do believe it's incredibly important for us as an industry and as a company that we do what we can to help consumers make better choices And so all the things that we're doing around smaller pack sizes, reformulating our products to reduce sugar using natural sweeteners such as Stevia and growing our presence into other beverage categories such as water. These are all really important things for us to do and really, indeed, they are responding to what the consumer wants to do. The consumer is concerned about health. The consumer is wanting to consume less sugar, so it makes good business sense for us as well.
0: It seems to me a bit of a problem in the sense that arguing that sugar taxes don't work actually leads you to say, well, it actually wouldn't reduce, therefore, your sales. I mean, if it didn't work, what that suggests is that sales of sugary drinks haven't fallen, in which case it doesn't affect your profits or jobs or anything else. If it did affect your profits and affect jobs, then it was working, if you know what I mean.
3: I do know what you mean. When I say that they don't work, what I mean is that they don't work in reducing obesity. We've seen a number of these taxes come in and just be applied to a subset of the beverages category, so sugar-based carbonated beverages, for example. So you can tax that subset of a beverage category and definitely have an impact on the sales of that beverage category. But what we see is that consumers will... First of all, you're only talking about less than 2% of the average calorie intake. The difference is very, very marginal in terms of actual calorie intake. And we also see that consumers will switch and they will still take in the same amount of calories or the same amount of sugar by switching to other products. So, you know, for example, there are other beverages which have quite a lot of sugar in them. And certainly higher sugar consumption comes from confectionery, cakes and other sources of discretionary consumption. So soft drinks is small in the scheme of things and that's why it doesn't work in tackling obesity.
0: Moving on to recent stories that have appeared that suggest that you're looking at acquisitions, is that right?
3: We're always thinking about how we can grow and and challenging our thinking and we're very fortunate to have A good balance sheet, which means that we can invest capital in growing organically, such as we're doing with our $165 odd that we're investing in our Australian supply chain to expand our capability in dairy and juice. If there are bolt-on acquisitions out there that make sense, we'll certainly take an interest in them, but certainly no plans to do anything at the moment. So how
0: should investors view your company? I'm just kind of thinking in terms of growth... You talk Mm -hmm. a lot about and seem to be focusing quite a lot on Indonesia as your source of growth. Would that be right? I mean, as a Mm -hmm. growth prospect, is an investment in your company an Indonesian beverage play?
3: We've expressed our shareholder value proposition as that we target to deliver mid-single-digit EPS growth and that we also want to maintain a good balance sheet and a healthy dividend payout, so above 80% type dividend payout. So I think that's overall what we're aiming to deliver for shareholders. Now, we're fortunate to have the diversity of businesses that we have. And if our growth businesses can achieve double-digit type earnings, our core markets such as Australia, low single-digit earnings, then we know that that equation of mid-single-digit EPS growth is doable. And we have not only Indonesia, which is, I think, a wonderful growth business, um, but we also have our alcohol and coffee business where we're making some great gains, and then a couple of other smaller markets, PNG and Fiji, but they're also delivering some pretty useful growth for us as well.
0: The New Zealand startup Martin Aircraft Company floated two years ago at $0.40, shot to $1.20 in a blaze of excitement about the possibilities of flying around with a jet on your back, like something out of the Jetsons, and then the stock started tumbling and hasn't stopped. Today, it's sitting at $0.15, a fall of about 90%. So I tracked down the CEO, James West, in Christchurch and asked him, what's going on? I think you have to look at
4: this as a long-term investment, and we are certifying a new-to-industry aircraft here. So there are risks associated with investments like this, but at the end of the day, we are progressing towards the goal of having a certified Series 1 aircraft, which will be a brand-new aircraft to the industry, which will be vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. So... We are progressing. At the end of the day, the share price will be relatively volatile as we work through this process. It is a longer-term investment.
0: But your chairman actually opened the annual meeting by saying, let me start by making it very clear that your board is not happy with the progress made by the company to the end of the financial year.
4: Yes, yeah, so I was put in uh, at that time as the CEO, and we oh, I significantly it. restructured the company at that point. So, look, I think at, at the end of the day, the board is referring to the fact that we didn't make the technical progress that we would have liked in the period since the IPO and subsequent to that, the company's been significantly restructured and refocused. So our simplified focus is very clearly now on building and testing our Series 1 aircraft and doing physical capability demonstrations to customers, and that is the focus and target of the company.
0: Was that not the focus before? The company had
4: a wider focus, and it was attempting to sell the aircraft prior to having a proper demonstrating uh, aircraft, and while we had some engagement... At the end of the day, we did not secure any distributorships or customers prior to having a product that we can actually physically demonstrate, and it's our clear belief that until we can physically demonstrate the capability of the aircraft, we're not going to have meaningful engagement with customers.
0: In fact, I saw you announce that you've sold four Series 1 jetpacks this week in China. Is that your first sale? They
4: are our first sales, but I would note that they are experimental aircraft that we'll use for capability demonstrations in China, is, which will be very similar to the capability demonstrations that we'll do here in New Zealand. So we'll be physically demonstrating the capability of the aircraft to customers in both China and New Zealand, utilising those aircraft.
0: Oh, so they're not actually a sale, they're more a demonstration model? They are a sale, but they will be used for demonstration purposes. So tell us about how the certification is going, both, in I suppose, in New Zealand and elsewhere.
4: Right, so the certification process is critical for us because we believe to sell meaningful numbers of aircraft we need to be certified. So the first point is that we're working through our operational readiness and there's a number of requirements we need to cover up with the CA in relation to our design and our manufacturer and our assembly and we're well advanced with getting the company operationally ready to certify and as we work through the current test program and work through the customer requirements and also work for an independent safety assessment, we will determine what the baseline initial commercial product is and based on that we will understand the exact certification cost and timing and at that point we will go back to our shareholders letting them know exactly what that baseline aircraft is and how long we think it will cost and how long it will take to get the aircraft certified.
0: So do you know at this stage how long it will take to get them certified?
4: No one knows that what we can do is use best estimates. So at the end of the day, we're taking a complete new aircraft through a certification process. So until we complete our detailed safety assessments and complete what we believe the baseline aircraft is, we will not have an accurate assessment of the cost
0: and timeline. You wouldn't have taken the job if you didn't think they would be certified.
4: Oh, we absolutely back our product, and this is why we're working on the process we are. But the the process for becoming certified is we have to agree what the baseline product is, which will work through what our customer requirements are and our safety assessment and complete our testing program and based on that we'll be able to prepare a very detailed plan which we'll agree with the CAA and uh, also with the FAA in relation to how we will get this aircraft certified.
0: Is the future of the company kind of binary in the sense that if you certify them you're fine, you're going to sell jetpacks and you've got a business, if you don't get certified there's no business at all, is that the situation?
4: I think that there's some truth to that. Look, I think in my mind, unless we have a certified aircraft, we'll never sell material numbers of the aircraft. So you are looking at a very cut-down business from what we have now, but realistically, in my view, to be a global business, we need to have a certified aircraft. How much are you going to sell them for? We will need to work through uh, what the actual baseline aircraft is, and then we'll be having that discussion with our customers around the sales price, but it's not, not something that we can speculate on on the market at this stage.
0: Tell us a bit about the, uh, the uh, properties of it. What does it do?
4: So it's a very light vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that can obviously fly in areas that fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters can't, and it's a very easy-to-fly aircraft. So it has a number of benefits over over traditional um, aircraft, and it's also an aircraft that can take a pilot, and if it doesn't take a pilot, it can take a payload, and it can generate power in the sky to power up certain applications such as communication devices. So it has multi-uses. What sort of cash burning you are going through at the moment? So our cash burn was significantly higher than $10 million last year because we capitalised a lot of our development costs. So what we had done uh, subsequently is, as part of our simplified focus is we have reduced the headcount by about a quarter and we're really just focusing on our core capability to have a team that can build tests and assemble a and take it through certification. So we've reduced the headcount back to about 80, which is still a significant number, but you need to have a certain base of people and skill sets to take a new aircraft to market.
0: And so you're going to have to raise some more money?
4: So we are looking uh, at the moment we have an underwrite from our major shareholder for $10 to get us through the next 12 months commercial development. And as we complete our safety assessment and work through our certification path and timeline, we will go back to the shareholders with what that looks like in relation to time and also funding requirements.
0: Today's birthday is a woman, actually it was her birthday yesterday, and not because that was International Women's Day, but because she's the best songwriter ever, and she wrote and sang one of my all time favourite songs. Here's Carol Bayer Sager, 70 Yesterday with You're Moving Out Today. Thanks to all the team and to ISM Studios for the music. I'll be smiling at you from your inbox on Saturday morning with, among other fabulous things, a special look at the lithium market.